Our text this afternoon is going to be Mark chapter 13. So if you have a Bible device, something, you want to turn there, uh, I am going to be addressing, in a sense, the entire chapter. I'm not going to read the entire chapter together. We'll read, uh, let's see, maybe just the first 13 verses together, but we're going to take a, a, a broad stroke at the entire chapter, and I hope you'll understand why by the time it's over. Let's pray. Let's ask for the Spirit's help in and through His Word to work into our hearts for His glory. We do, Lord, humble ourselves before You, uh, but we come with hearts open wide, hungry hearts. Your Word, the Scriptures, the Bible, these are words of life for us. These are words that, that came or originating from you, passed down to us because you had intention for them in us, in this church, in each of our hearts and lives. We pray that we would grasp that and comprehend that this afternoon and that in that, Lord, would be that wonderful work of your spirit making it alive and real and transforming. Change us today. We want to go out different than the way we came in. All because you spoke to us. Do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, there is really nothing that seems to occupy our minds quite like the future. The future we think about the future a lot. Whether you're thinking about, I wonder how good those waffles will be at Nicole's, what's for dinner, I can't wait to lay my head on the pillow tonight. Maybe you've got your Monday morning to-do list already cycling through your mind. We think about the future a lot. Sometimes we think about long-term issues. Wondering how will our health fare into the years to come? How's the economy going to go and how's that going to affect us? Will I be happy? We think about tomorrow. We think about next year and it occupies a massive amount of our thought life. It's not just a volume that we think about the future so much, but when we think about the future, it has a, an unusual and profound effect on us, depending on how we think about the future. Sometimes when we think about the future, we end up doing very strange things. It's a pandemic, and now we have closets full of toilet paper. How did that happen? We thought about the future, and it compelled us to do something interest rates going up, economy changing, we've got to sell, we've got to move, something's got to happen. We think about the future. We have perceptions about the future, and it profoundly affects us in the present. We react to it. It, it moves us. Buy, sell, move, change, prepare. There's another way for us to think about the future that can cause us to do extraordinary things. Depending on how we think about the future, it can cause us to do some unusually courageous things, things that can result in a, in a very positive future, even though it may involve 
present day sacrifices. So depending on how we think about the future, we can either be paralyzed with fear, traumatized about what might happen, what we think might happen. At the same time, how we think about the future could very much embolden us with unusual amounts of courage, causing us to do unusual things for God. Mark chapter 13 is an entire chapter about the future. It's an amazingly pastoral chapter where Jesus prepares his disciples and us, his church, for the future. The chapter is designed to tell us precisely what you and I need to know about the future in order for us to live each and every day in the present filled with faith, filled with hope, filled with courage. It tells us about what's important. It tells us how to live today. It tells us how we can live into a great and glorious future. It all depends on how we think about the future. Mark chapter 13 is a difficult passage. I know it's going to be an exciting week when I charge into my sermon prep on Tuesday and I start digging into the text and I start digging into the commentaries and I start reading comments like this. James Edwards, one of the most perplexing chapters in the Bible to understand. William Lane, in the Gospel of Mark, there is no passage more problematic than the prophetic discourse of Jesus on the destruction of the temple. R.T. France, it remains the most disputed area in the study of Mark's Gospel. It's going to be a great week. I knew it by the end of Tuesday. It's going to be an exciting week. My aim this afternoon is to help make this chapter as understandable and as clear, but most importantly, as useful as possible to each and every one of us. God has a plan for the future that he prepares us for. It is important. It is dangerous. It is glorious. But it requires our vigilance. It's the sermon right there. God has a plan for the future. He prepares us for it. It is important. It is dangerous. It's glorious. It requires our vigilance. Let's look at Mark chapter 3 while I look, find page 2 of my notes. Oh, it is not here. Lost. I lost a page of my notes. I knew this was going to be a great sermon. I just knew it. I knew it on Tuesday. Let's read our passage together. You know, you could actually open up my computer. Yeah, that'd be great. Mark chapter 13. We'll read the first uh, 13 verses. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite 
I'm sorry. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Beautiful, thank you. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed, first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all. For my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I'm going to give you a framework for understanding this chapter. In Mark chapter 13, and if you would on your own finish reading and read the entire chapter, there is in this chapter reference to a near future and there's reference to a distant future. Like two futures are in view here. The near future involves the generation listening, the disciples, the people that were alive at this time. There was a, a near future prediction. Jesus was preparing them for the rest of their time on the earth. That's the near future part. And then there's the distant future that speaks to the close of the age. The return of Christ and the final judgment. What that does is this near future, distant future does. It means that Jesus is instructing the disciples that he's preparing as he's about to leave. It also means that in that you and I are getting instructed. The future church, the distant future, the ones who will belong to the body of Christ into the future prior to the return of Christ. These two futures are interspersed in this chapter, and they run somewhat in parallel. They're distinct, but they have similarities. The near future, in fact, forms a kind of type and a shadow of the distant future. So the actual events that we'll talk about that will take place from the time that he was referring to here in the lives of the disciples that were asking the questions of Jesus, there are some parallels. Those actions, those events will have a, a bit of a type and a shadow-like effect 
foreshadowing the distant future events that Jesus was referring to. There is another aspect of the near future that has another kind of parallel, and that's with Jesus himself. We're talking about judgment, persecution, and opposition, and future glory. The immediate future of the text is Jesus going on trial in the temple, being convicted, being crucified, and being risen from the dead. Within some years, the disciples are going to follow suit and going to experience their persecution and their death and their resurrection. In the distant future, you and I, living in Christ, will experience in various ways our aspects of persecution and trials and difficulties. So all these things sort of run in a kind of parallel. And as you read through Mark chapter 13, you'll see, oh, near future. Oh, distant future. And implicit is it with Christ, the immediate future. The three things I want to point out from this chapter to make, hopefully make this helpful. First, the temple. Second, the trouble. And thirdly, the task. Let's look first at the temple. The chapter begins as they leave the temple. Now, ever since chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus has entered the temple and all the interaction, all the weeks that we've been in this section here has been in and around the temple. And there has been this sort of clash between Jesus and the temple, the officials of the temple. It's almost like they've been in a court case and it's been unclear who's... uh, Who's the defendant and, and who's not and who's on what, what side here? They've been trying to condemn each other and it goes kind of back and forth. Jesus comes into the temple and the temple officials are trying to put him on trial, trying to find ways to convict him. At times, Jesus turns the table and starts asking them questions and pointing out ways that they have failed, how the temple is not what God has called it to be. In verse 3 of what we read, it's like each party adjourns, leaves the courtroom, and begins to deliberate their decision. And the temple officials go off and begin making their plans to see that Jesus ends up convicted and crucified. Jesus leaves the temple with his disciples, and the first few verses give us his telling about the destruction of the temple. It begins with a comment from one of the disciples. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones. What wonderful buildings. Well, it truly was a sight to see. Herod had a a, a penchant for extravagance, and no place was it seen quite as much as in the temple in Jerusalem that he had built. It was a massive undertaking. It was a glorious temple. It was a wonder to see. It, it, it truly was. The circumference of the temple was a mile. It enclosed about 35 acres of beautiful buildings and courtyards. It was the stones that were its claim to fame. The stones were massive. This is like almost unthinkable in our day because you wonder how they move them. 
One stone was recorded as being about 40 feet long. We're talking 11 feet high, maybe 14 feet wide, and 40 feet long. Can you imagine one stone? This was its claim to fame. There were many large, extremely large stones. You have to wonder, how did, how did they manage this? But this was the thing. You've got to go to Jerusalem, and you've got to see the temple. It's like saying, you've got to go to Paris, and you've got to go to the Louvre, and you've got to see the Eiffel Tower. Well, you've got to go to Jerusalem, and you've got to see the temple, and you've got to see those huge stones. Stand up next to them. And get, a, get some perspective of, of just how massive these stones are that they used to build this temple. Between the huge white marble stones and the gold that they used to decorate the temple was a magnificent sight. And as Jesus and the disciples were leaving, they took this path that led them, there was a little blue sign that said scenic route, a viewpoint, you know, and where you could see the temple. And not only was it magnificent to see up close, but can you imagine getting some distance away and getting the whole panoramic view of the temple? It was remarkable. Historians wrote about it. It was like a wonder of the world. There really wasn't anything quite like it. made Jesus' prediction all the more stunning. Not one stone will be left upon another. 20-foot, 40-foot stones, 14 feet thick. It's quite a prediction. Not one stone is going to be left on top of another. This is what's going to happen. This was the pronouncement of condemnation by Jesus over the temple. And all what it came to represent. Earlier in our previous week passage, Jesus told a story about a fig tree. It was a story about the temple. A fig tree that he cursed because it bore no fruit. Now here he is in the temple, interacting with the temple, clashing with the temple. From its inception, this temple was supposed to point to Christ. From the very beginning when it was a tent in the wilderness, the tabernacle, from the tabernacle to the temple, it was all designed. It had a heavenly design to represent. And the actual reality representation, what the whole thing was about, was Jesus. In various ways, that tent and that building was all designed to point the people of God to Christ. The temple meant this is the place where you go to find God. You go to the temple to meet God. And Jesus makes the claim here earlier, the temple was the place where the people of God were to pray for the nations because it's the temple that becomes the means for the nations to come and to know God. It was for meant to be for all the nations, all the people. And the temple was the focal point. I had to completely leave out the Old Testament from this message because we could teach for, for weeks. There's so many Old Testament references here. But throughout the Old Testament, the judgment against the temple, when the temple got off course, 
So when God stepped in and there was judgment, and that's what's happening with Jesus here. He's in a clash with the temple. And he says, you've made this a, a, a den of thieves and robbers. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. This is supposed to be the place where people find God, and you've made it anything but. And Jesus arrives, and he is himself the replacement temple. And so he pronounces the destruction, the judgment, on this magnificent, marvelous building. And it happened just as Jesus said. Some years later, then about 70 A.D., and Josephus, the historian, writes about this. He wrote, Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground so as to leave future visitors to the spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. This marvelous, wonderful, magnificent structure was so raised to the ground, Josephus is saying, you could go up and stand in that place and you'd be hard-pressed to prove that anything existed there. It truly came to pass, not one stone was left upon another. Okay, a lot of detail about the temple. What does this tell us about the future? When Jesus was on trial at his death, Mark records this was the one allegation recorded in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus claimed that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, it was a, it was a false accusation. Jesus didn't actually claim that he would destroy the temple. He said it would be destroyed. He predicted its demise. But in that false temp, uh, testimony, there was some truth recorded in Mark chapter 14, verse 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Jesus is saying, what's made by man will come down. What is not made by man will stand. The temple is supposed to be the place to meet God. The judgment comes on it. It's destroyed. It's leveled. It's raised to the ground. You can't even tell it was there. And Jesus comes as the temple not made with hands, replacing that temple and being the place where we find God, where all nations can come and find God. What does this tell us about the future? The future rests entirely on the temple not made with hands, not on the temple made with hands. What is man made will come to an end. What is God made will last forever. The building that we're meeting in we feel is quite an improvement from the previous building we were meeting in. It's nicer. It's better. It fits us better. The rooms are nicer. The restrooms are by far nicer. But this is a building made with hands. 
and these buildings will come and they will go. But what God is building in your heart, in my heart, in our lives together, in this congregation, what God is fashioning here by his spirit is something that is made not with hands. And the body of Christ will endure. How does this relate to how you think about the future? Well, what are you going to invest yourself in? If Jesus tells you in advance, this is going to come to an end and this is going to endure. That is supposed to determine how you and I invest ourselves today. It is supposed to help us determine what we value today. We value what is eternal we value the body of Christ. We value his church. We value the work of Christ in you. We value the, the fact that Christ is the temple that we want all nations to come to. So we value the opportunity to invite all nations to come to Christ. That's what we give ourselves to. It tells us something about the future to affect how we live our lives today. Point number two, we move on to trouble. They asked Jesus, when? When are these things going to happen? But Jesus answers, with what? They want to know when. Jesus tells them what. They ask the same questions that you and I tend to ask. We want to know when. When is Jesus coming back? Isn't that an intriguing question? We want to figure it out. There's got to be some clues. If God's Spirit would help me and I was keen enough and sharp enough, I think I could figure out some of the hidden clues, some of the codes. And yet that is not what Jesus does. It is, it is a strange irony. The very thing that Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you, seems to be the very thing so many of us want to know. And it tends to sort of ruffle our feathers a little bit and we tend to ignore what he says. In fact, I believe some, at least some, of what makes this chapter so difficult is that we have such a tendency to want it to say what it doesn't say and that we don't necessarily want to hear what it does say. We want details. We want to know when. We want calculations. William Lane explains it this way. The primary function of chapter 13 is not to disclose esoteric information but to promote faith and obedience in a time of distress and upheaval. With profound pastoral concern, Jesus prepares his disciples and the church for a future period which would entail both persecution and mission. Lane goes on to write, vigilance rather than calculation is required of the disciples and of the church. We're being called to vigilance, not calculation. We think, I will be ready if I know when. But Jesus tells us that living ready is the key to our success. There's a key to actually not knowing when and just saying, we just need to live ready. You just need to live every day, every moment of your life, vigilant and, and ready. And that's what we're being called to here. What Jesus tells them warns against the idea of an imminent consummation of the kingdom that was just around the corner. 
Instead, here he's preparing them for their real future, which involved lots of trouble. Can you imagine? It was not what the disciples were expecting. Can you imagine being a disciple and having to watch Jesus die and to think everything you believed in just went down the drain and it must all be over? The level of how you were so distraught and so disillusioned and disappointed. And then for on that third day to find out that he rose from the dead and it all changed and the joy comes back and oh I thought it was over it's not over oh maybe it's just beginning and maybe this is it and everything seems glorious and you think and we know the questions Jesus when you're seated can we sit next to you I mean I'm just picturing Jesus on this throne and the 12 of us on nice seats all around and it sounds very glorious and yet here Jesus is preparing them for their future and he says Look, guys, it's going to be lots of trouble, lots of difficulty. Jesus predicts trouble for them. Jesus says in the near future, well, for Jesus in the immediate future, he himself is going to experience severe opposition. The leaders of the temple are adjourned and scheming and planning as he speaks, ready to make their case and come back and make their arrest. He's days away from his time on the cross. The near future for the disciples themselves, they're going to have a very similar experience. They're going to experience some of what's in Mark chapter 13 in their generation. And then we have the distant future, you and I and the generations until Jesus comes encountering a similar kinds of troubles and what does jesus tell them see that no one leads you astray it's going to be many false christ and history records that in the lifetime of the disciples many rose up and said i'm the messiah jesus is gone now i'm here i'm the one many came and spoke in his name i'm here representing the messiah i'm telling you what it's all about and he warned them there will be many people impersonating me. There will be many imposters. Be on your guard. So there's going to be many alarming current events. You're going to have a hard time reading the newspaper. It's going to cause you all kinds of fear and trepidation. You're going to have traumatic experiences just reading the daily news. But take heart. There's going to be lots of bad things that are going to happen. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines. Oh, it just seemed like every day. What, what is it? What's next? What's, what's going wrong next in the world? This must be the end. And Jesus says, it's not the end. It's just the beginning. Take heart. Don't lose heart. Don't get distracted with current events. God has a plan. These things must take place. It's part of what God is doing. So don't be shaken. Don't be shaken by the current events. See that no one leads you astray. See that no current event leads you astray. And be ready for personal persecution. They're going to drag you into court. They're going to accuse you. They're going to try you. They're going to sentence you. 
For some of you, they are going to put you to death. Jesus sets their expectations in order to prepare them. Oh, I'm sorry. Would you rather go to a church where somebody stands up says, your next paycheck's going to be bigger, guaranteed. person of your dreams is going to show up this week. Everything is going to be wonderful. Everything's going to work out just the way you'd hoped. Just believe God. Can you imagine these disciples listening to Jesus as he's explaining their future to them? Guys, be on your guard. Here's what's going to happen. They're out to get you. God has a good plan. But at this point, there is this major cosmic conflict between the spirit of the age and the spirit of God. They are on a collision course and there's going to be all kinds of trouble, all kinds of persecutions. There's going to be a fight before there's a victory. Going to war is, is never a desired journey. But sometimes you go to war because you know there's a good desired and we can look back on history and we can thank God for some of the fights that did take place that led to our good. And here is the cosmic spiritual battle being laid out. And if you know that, you can know what to expect. You know how to think about your future. The comfort he gives when he says, when they drag you into court, don't worry about what you're going to say. Have you, have you thought about that verse as many times as I have? Because you know, as soon as you try and tell somebody about Jesus, you're going to get tripped up. You're not going to know what to say. And it's like, I know the Bible says it's going to be okay. Like the Holy Spirit's going to show up and, and, and give me the words to say. And friends, God is with you. He will. Here's, here's the gist of it. Jesus has given us his spirit. We are not alone. That doesn't mean I never find myself a little tongue-tied and I'm not sure how to answer that question and have to find my way through. The point is this. How do I think about my future? That the Holy Spirit is in me. He's with me. I can move forward with courage. I can move forward with boldness because I'm not alone. If I were on my own, if I were alone... That would be cause for concern. That would be cause for fear. That would be cause for trepidation. That would be cause for holding back. But for Jesus to say, I've given you my spirit, now go. That's encouraging. The conflict is intense. It's dangerous. He leaves us in it because he has a task for us to carry out point number three is the task the key verse verse 10 kind of thrown in there felt a little out of place and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations beware be on your guard 
lots of trouble. The world's going to look like it's falling apart. There's going to be many imposters claiming to meet me. Watch out for them. Be discerning. And before I get to the part about them throwing you into jail and persecuting you and killing you, in the middle, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. There's our task. That's why all the good is delayed. That's why we have the time we have. Because this is the plan of God. This is the task of God for us. That the gospel be proclaimed to all nations. Of all the plans that God lays out in this chapter, this one is the highlight. The temple will be destroyed. The disciples will be persecuted. The day of judgment will come. But in the midst of it all, the gospel will be told to all the nations. That's the plan. That's what needs to happen. It's sandwiched in between two realities which tell us this. That mission is often the very thing that invites the persecution. It's because we're on that mission. It gets us into that kind of trouble. Because we got to tell all nations about who Jesus is, that he's the real temple, he's the place, he's the person where you can find God, that will get us into trouble. That will invite the persecution. At the same time, it is that task, that reality that enables and equips us to endure the persecution. It's because this is the task that needs to be done that I can endure the trouble and the heartache and the persecution and the setbacks because it's got to be done. Because there's a better cause than my comfort. There's a better cause than me living a trouble-free life. Lane writes, the proclamation of the gospel to all men is an absolute priority in the divine plan of salvation. And as such, is an integral element in God's eschatological purpose. This is what it's all about. It's why we exist. It's what we need to be about. The task that we need to give ourselves to, does everybody know about this wonderful new living temple? It showers the grace of God into people's lives. Friends, I know that the, the hardest and most difficult trials are the ones that just seem to make no sense. Why is this happening? Why are we going through this? I can't figure it out. I don't know why it's going so badly. Let's listen to our pastor, Pastor Jesus, prepare us for the future. Here's what's going on. You've been brought into this cosmic clash, this warfare. It's so important that you get engaged in this because you are the tool and the means that this gospel is going to get to every nation. But it's going to put you in the fray. It's going to put you in all kinds of vulnerable situations. It's going to cause lots of hardship and trial in your life. But I want you to know this is the task. It's a good task. There's a grand, glorious outcome. There's two glories that really make it all worth it. We didn't read that far, but in the next section, it talks about the return of Christ and talks about how there's going to be a day 
when the sky is going to break open and the glorious Christ is going to come and return. And now here you have the contrast. I was trying to describe to you the glorious temple, white marble, gold, shimmering, magnificent sight. That's destroyed. And now we have this glorious Christ breaking through the skies, making himself visible to the world, this glorious, shimmering, shining, bright, so bright, whiter than white robe, everything glimmering and glorious, too much for your eye to behold, the glorious moment of all history when we see him return. A moment where every one of us will say, was all worth it. Whatever sacrifice, whatever cost, whatever trouble, this moment, him, because of him, he's the one who befriended me when I was his enemy. He's the one who sought me out when I wanted nothing to do with him, when I was completely consumed with my own happiness, my own life, my own plans. He came and interrupted my selfishness and awakened my heart and called me his friend and enlisted me into his family and invited me to be a co-heir with him of all the glories of the kingdom of heaven. I can't believe he did it. And then he breaks the skies open and I see his glory and I see him for who he is. And I'm amazed. That glory, that moment of glory, it's just not a moment, it's forever, eternity. That will be worth any and all sacrifice, difficulty that you and I face. I said, there's two glories. Because when he comes, it says he's going to gather his elect from the four corners, from the four winds, from everywhere, from the north, south, east, and west. He's going to scour the earth, and he's going to gather in his family, his children, his sons, and his daughters. And when that happens, you're going to say, you look familiar. Were you at Sovereign Grace for a while? Did you pass through Sovereign Grace for a couple years? Ah, there you are again. Were you that person that I talked to in the park at Jam and talked to about the Lord and you didn't know the Lord? It, really? You too? He got to you? He saved you too? When we see God gathering in his own, and we realize there's every nationality, there's every color, there's every language, there's every tribe, there's every tongue, there's every mix of anything and everything you can imagine on the face of the planet, and he's gathering them in. Between his glory and the glory of a people that were lost and enemies of God, now made friends and family and being gathered into the household of faith, Friends, that vision is what we're after. 
That's the task we're on. That's the vision we're after. That's the glory, which is why it was not a problem for Jesus to say, all right, guys, here's what life's going to look like for you. Everybody's going to hate you because you belong to me. Now, why would that be okay? And why would I invite you to church and sit and listen to a sermon and say, okay, everybody, here's your future. Everybody's going to hate you. <laughs> and you're going to have all kinds of trouble. And the world events are going to go to pot and it's going to scare you every day you read the news and everything's going to be miserable and you might even die. Well, it's all in a context because God has a plan. God has a plan he's preparing us for. It's important. It's dangerous. It's glorious. Today is difficult. Tomorrow is glorious. Today is filled with trouble. Tomorrow is filled with wonder. Now, if Jesus didn't tell you that, you wouldn't know it. And if all you had was the present to look at, you'd run out of here and buy some more toilet paper. You'd sell your house. You'd buy Bitcoin. You'd, you'd do something. I mean, you would, you would, you'd have to find some way to feel safe. Except a wonderful pastor, Jesus, takes us aside and said, ladies and gentlemen, friends, sons, daughters, here's how it's going to be. It's not going to be easy. I got a task for you. It's going to cost you. It's going to be difficult. You're going to feel some pain, but I want you to know it will very much, in fact, be worth it in the end. Okay, we'll leave that page out. I think that's enough. I think we got the gist of it. Do you get the gist of it? Be on your guard. Stay awake. Oh, it's going to have a lot of fun with stay awake. <laughs> stay awake for the sermon. Stay awake in your life. Stay awake. Keep your soul awake. Be vigilant. Be diligent. Don't let your heart drift. Don't wander off. Don't lose sight of the big picture. Don't lose sight of the plan here. Oh, months, years wasted. Because we fell asleep, busy with other things. This is what we're called to. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's worth it. Let's stand. Let's stand. Maybe worship team, can we come close with a song? Father, thank you for preparing us for a future. And we know the time that we live in and the people in this room, the, the varieties of persecution and trouble we, we can't predict except we know they will come the amount of opposition the amount of hatred varies from place to place and time to time but here we are the fact is we're yours and so we submit ourselves to your plan and now that you've told us what it's all about the trouble is in this sense, no trouble at all. Because we're looking 
that wonderful glory when we see your face and not just your face but the faces of multitudes from every nation use us for your glory in Jesus name amen to those, so this is your invitation, others, those who have, have heard the bad news that's currently out there, the various things that will trouble our souls, and have taken their eyes, you've taken your eyes off the glories of Christ, the glories of his church, the glories of this future that has just been preached to us this morning. So if that's you, be bold, be humble. And go, go pray with those who are on the sides of the room or in the back.
I know we, we, we live in fearful times. We live in troubled times. There is absolutely wars and rumors of wars. There's pestilence. There's, we have earthquakes. We, we've got it all. It's happening. In one sense, it's completely understandable to wake up, flip open your newsfeed, and to experience fear in your heart and to wonder about the future. Is it going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? That's completely understandable. So could I encourage you, pull up a chair, next to Pastor Jesus in the circle of his disciples and take some time in Mark chapter 13 and let your loving Savior help you with your fears about the future. And he's going to affirm, yep, it's dangerous. Yes, there's trouble. Yes, it's not going to all go smoothly and, and well, but know this know this I'm with you through it all I will never leave you will never forsake you whatever the good whatever the bad I'm with you and I want you to know too that there is a plan a glorious plan but yes these things must be But they're just the beginnings of birth pangs, just the contractions. Something's going to be born. A new heaven and a new earth is coming. And I promise you, I promise you, if you stay vigilant, if you stay with me, you will not regret it. You will not be ashamed on that day. 
you'll only rejoice and be glad that you stayed the course. He who endures to the end will be saved. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Amen. God bless you.